Welcome to the Stargate Archives, buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain. Good evening everybody and welcome to this episode of the Stargate Archives. This week we are going to be looking at an episode of Stargate SG-1 with our guest, Tim. How are you mate? I'm alright. Now you've chosen a late season SG-1 episode, here to uh, enlighten us. I have gone with Beachhead. And why is that? God's honest truth, I had probably an hour or so before you messaged me saying, oh do you fancy doing recording? I was actually thinking about this episode one specific scene that always tends to stick in the head. Yep. So it was sort of fresh in the head, so I was like, ooh, Beachhead, go for it. Good a reason as any. Right then, Beachhead is a Season 9, Episode 6 of Stargate SG-1. It was written by Brad Wright, directed by Brad Turner. Brad Turner has a huge resume. He's directed episodes of 24, Psych, Hawaii Five O, more recently V-Wars, which was a reasonably good Netflix vampire series. He's directed eight episodes of SG-1 and six of Atlantis. And if you want to age uh, the man, first directing job was Airwolf. Gotta love that show back in the day. The show itself doesn't hold up quite so well now. No. But it still works, if only for the music. <laughs> yes, it, it did have a very good opening credit sequence. And your blood started pumping when the music kicked in and the helicopter lifted off and zoomed around like helicopters do not do. Just something about that and the Night Rider theme tune. <laughs> and bang, it's Saturday afternoon again. It was an age of television, science fiction television, that I don't think they'll ever recapture. There's a style, there's a presentation that was so uniquely 80s and early 90s. We didn't even last a minute. No, we're already off topic. <laughs> right, back to uh, Beachhead. Oh, it's we're so bad at this. <laughs> At its premiere in America, August 19th, 2005. We got it in the UK, October the 18th of the same year, so not too long a wait. Of course, as the uh, season goes on, because of the preempts in sci-fi, we occasionally got the episodes before America, which was always pleasing. Right then, so episode opens up with a nice lengthy previously. We get a few scenes with uh, Cameron and Sam, uh, Daniel and Valor, quick uh, reflection on the use of the bracelets, Garrick and Origin. Basically a recap of pretty much something from at least every episode that's gone before this season. Yeah, you really know what you're in for from the previous seasons, because especially when you see something from two or three seasons back, you go, oh, right. <laughs> that's the only problem, not not just with Stargate, but with, with the recap in general. Yeah, okay, if it's something that's... Uh, it works for the casual viewer. Yeah. If you are, you know, a multi-season show... And you put something in a season nine recap from like season six or five, kind of tipping your hand. There is something to be said for letting the audience learn with the actual show as it goes along with the characters themselves. Mm. You should have some faith in, you know, your hardcore audience. But as you say, the reason it's there is because the suits say, well, we want casual viewers to just turn in on to understand what's going on or at least be able to grasp something. Whether that works in real life. We want someone who could be watching, who could, this could be their first episode of Stargate. We want them to know what's going on in case they saw all Ben Browder and Claudia back. Oh, brilliant, it's Farscape. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they've changed the title sequence again. 
And the theme tunes had another revamp as well. <laughs> we cut to a planet. There's a, a prior there. I always enjoyed the makeup for the Ori priors. Kind of the scarred face, which is very ritualistic, but uh, the very pale skin, very plasticky looking stuff. It always did look like it was made out of plastic. I must say, this really is a contrast, isn't it? The makeup jobs on the priors, fantastic. The outfit, great. Then you get to the prop. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. like, oof. <laughs> Run out of money there, didn't you? I think there's something unsettling about the priors as well. Yeah. The Jafar always look like cannon fodder. Let's be honest. Especially Jafar that aren't in the sort of the, the armour. But then again, as armour, it's not fantastically effective. And if you saw Jafar priest, you're just like, you're going to run away or hide behind something. You're not going to really be a problem. So I'm not going to worry about you too much. But the priors, there's just something... I think it's because nine times out of ten, they're so eerily calm. Yeah, you automatically think they know something, and they do. They they know they've got they've got energy shields. You can't see them, but they've got them. They know there's really not a lot you can do to them, and the only reason they will die if they choose to do so, or it's willed by their gods. It's like, well, you know, I'm, you know what? I'm not worried because I've more than I've more than met my quota on spreading the good word. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm at Jafar. I've handed out two dozen pamphlets today. I'm good. <laughs> Completely sold out on the Book of Origin. I'm waiting on that in back order. Yeah, I've even sold the deluxe leather-bound editions. Can be employee of the month. Ah, yes, the book that everyone wants, but so few people are actually willing to put hand in pocket. <laughs> This prior, he talks to some of the uh, civilian Jafar. I'd say formerly probably uh, warriors. They are all inked up, after all. They reject in origin very, very confidently. You know, we've, we've read your book. Uh, we're just not interested. Thank you very much. Please visit our neighbours. I'm sure they'd love to hear about it. <laughs> just, you, want, you, wonder you, how many, you wonder how many of them actually read the book and how many just heard the words new religion and were like, yeah. oh, no. Sorry, we've 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 already been played for suckers on this one once. Yeah, yeah, nice try. Yeah, somehow I managed to survive this civil war that gained us our freedom. I'm not going through it again. I don't trust these uh, Tari, let alone a brand new religion. Thank you very much. The prior, though, we, he's like you say, he's very calm. Fair enough, no problem. Of course, this world, Kalana, will serve their purpose, which is a very ominous. It's not the people will serve. It's it's he literally means the planet. Yeah. And you're thinking, yeah. okay, that's the shift. So far, you've been very much sort of you know people oriented. This is one of the really good things about this episode. On rewatch, you can see where they're laying the groundwork. Little phrases, little ideas in the plot, which only come to fruition much much later on. But they're all there when you when you rewatch it. Mm-hmm. This prior is played by Ian Butcher. He doesn't stick around too long, but puts in a stellar performance. Thanks to Origin, he's a very powerful individual, so much so that, well, he sends these Jafar away for a for a nice flying vacation. And again, doesn't actually look like he's put a lot of effort into doing it. No. He's like, oh, you're, you're shooting at me. That's just, just so bizarre. Go, go away. <laughs> Be off with you. Yeah, li- literally. I have no time for this. It's just a bit of, you know, forced projection and just manipulating a kind of an energy shield so it produces kind of a shockwave, but it's incredibly effective. Fantastic wire work. And <laughs> those Jafar, they, they go off into the distance, they get smaller and they vanish, and I think, oh, poor souls. <laughs> it's like, oh, I hope it's sand all over the planet because you're going to want a soft <laughs> landing. 
Right, so we get the theme music, and then we return to the gate room, and there's uh, there's Walter and uh, General Landry. Always good to see Walter. They, they get a text message through the gates, a bit unusual. I know they used to get them in the early days, but a bit uncivilised these days, isn't it? Sending a text, no emojis or anything. Yeah, I know, no, sort of, it's like, what, what? It's almost very, sort of, you know, it's almost retro, you think. What? <laughs> and even worse... It's in gold. Nobody can read it. And what's this, you know, a text message? What? No WhatsApp video message? No, what? I mean, what, what the hell is this? Yeah, would it really have killed him just to record 30 seconds of video and send that? <laughs> Saying, hi, call me back. Yeah, terrible. Anyway, give them some time. They've got to find somebody who can read Goaward. I'm sure there's somebody in the SGC who can. After all, it's. I'm sure it came in very handy over the years. And on that basis alone, you would have thought, maybe not necessarily Walter, although I'm sure Walter would have had a crack at it. But you would have thought over the years, you'd have made sure that there is always someone in the gate room that is going to be fluent in Goldworld. Yeah. Or maybe if not, if not necessarily fluent, you know, enough that you can get by conversationally, like when you go on holiday abroad, just so it isn't always down to one person. <laughs> yeah, you would hope at the very least Daniel would have some staff in the SEC rather than at Area 51 who would be fluent in pretty much any language going, because you'd never know what's going to come through the Stargate. And especially at this point when Daniel's not even supposed to be there. He's supposed to be going to Atlantis. So <laughs> what, were they going to dial into Atlantis every time something needed translating, or were they just going to hope that Tilt wasn't going to be in a council meeting? I can al almost imagine the department responsible for the SGZ budget saying, you know, look, they can speak English. We're not going to learn go old. They can speak English. We're not going to spend God knows how long on translation software, even though you could probably pick something up and, you know, update it or manipulate it, Rosetta software or something like that. But no, no. Everybody that comes through that gate can speak English. Otherwise, we ain't talking to them. We know Cree. That's all we need to know. <laughs> yeah. It seems to mean everything. Yeah, it's just a matter of inflection. That's, that's all it takes. Attitude, stance, and how you say things, which pretty much explains valour. Yeah. She's all attitude, stance, and how she talks. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we, uh, I won't dignify it by calling it a gym. It's a room with a hoop. Slightly less prop design go went into this than went into Serenity when they were playing their hoop and ball game. Yeah, this feels very much like a, oh God, for a couple of minutes, we're running a couple of minutes short. Um, I know, put a hoop up, it'll be fine. Yeah, Atlantis would have probably Ronan sparring with somebody. Then they'd have a whole fight sequence that probably took a, a day to coordinate. But SG1, no, we'll just throw a basketball around. We'll have uh, Tilk and Valor together because contrast. And Daniel, who never struck me as much of a sportsman, so Cam would probably be doing most of the work on that team. This was the scene that I actually had in mind. Partly because I was thinking how much this shows the difference between O'Neill SG1 and Cam SG1. It's not a stretch with Cam to have SG1 playing basketball. No, a younger officer, a little more fluid with his interpretation of how to mm, not handle himself. Uh, Whereas you wouldn't see that with O'Neill. No, he, even in his peak, he wouldn't be doing this. He would. You could totally see him inviting everyone round to his place to watch basketball, or even maybe going to a basketball match but actually physically the entire team doing it. 
Well, that's it. You know, if, if it ain't fishing, then Jack's not interested. Mm. Or maybe hockey. Jack, probably, you know, if uh, they had a nice, some cold winters. To be fair, we saw the meth he made a Hammond's car. He's got a <laughs> min swing on him. Yeah. That was the scene that I had in mind, just sort of highlighting the difference. Plus, you've got the little sort of scoring celebration between Tilk and Vala. Oh, the hip bumps. Yeah. And it's like, you can see Vala doing that always. But think back to early Tilk. Oof, yeah. He's having no part of that. Or he's just going to respond in kind, but with a little bit too much oomph. And, you know, Fala's going across that hard... She's, he's going across that room, landing on that hard floor, and she's going to need a hip operation. <laughs> it's a, a nice, fun scene. Great chemistry between all the cast. Daniel and Fala again. It's just great writing for him. The other thing is, Tilk and Daniel look like they're enjoying themselves. Yes, they do. It's, you know, again, it's that sort of thing that if you tried to do that scene a few years ago, they'd have been there, but they would very much have looked like they were there under protest. Whereas now it actually looks like, no, this is where we want to be. This is what we want to be doing. Well, I think this far into the series, a lot of the pressure of the early missions are off. Till the Jafar have gained their freedom. It's certainly not plain sailing going forward, but at least the problems are their own problems. Daniel... It's been a few years since he finally underlined his first wife, the ups and downs of that. Let's face it, the lad tended to get over women very, very quickly. Yeah, I mean, really, it's a, it's a miracle that he remembered Charay for as long as he did. <laughs> Not just a conversation. Daniel, aren't we supposed to be looking for your wife? You know what? I knew there was something. I wouldn't have thought he even had many pictures of her. He often took video a video camera in the early years around with him, but he probably doesn't have many pictures of Charay. I think you've got that one framed photo that sits in his office for quite a lot of the early... But thinking about it, I'm not sure if it's there all the time in the later ones. Uh, he's moved on. Several times. <laughs> the general comes in. I don't know if he's, if you'd say he was amused or exasperated or just, oh, it's, it's, it's come again. At least they're not bothering me while they're here. They're going to have a visitor. They've had a message from a, a gold, not a system lord, just a, a run-of-the-mill gold, name and nearest considered to be a, a low-level uh, operative under the service of Ball. Valor knows him. She doesn't approve. That's putting it mildly. She wants no part of this. This is where we get kind of a running plot line throughout the episode of Vala being extremely sensible and drawing upon her experience of the people who are out there. And Daniel basically telling her to show up every opportunity he got. Yes. Which leads to some unforeseen consequences as we will find out later on in the episode. Mind you, to be honest, I think they're all probably still reeling from the incident where they decided it would be a good idea to take Fala while we go and testify before the people that fund us. Because <laughs> she's not going to accuse the man in charge of having shortcomings, shall we say. <laughs> no. Oh, dear. <laughs> Only Fala would walk up to him, jump on his desk, uh, cross <laughs> her legs. Men and their big ships. <laughs> uh, bless her. She says he's not to be trusted, or Tilk says I think he's, he's not to be trusted, and the general says, well, that's a bit weird, because he's got awfully good things to say about you. And then he gets the ball, throws, gets three points, and walks out the door. Mic drop, if you ever heard it. Yeah, I was about to say, that's very much the equivalent of dismissed. Yeah. Playtime's over, come on. As it happens, Bo Bridges was a basketball player in his college days. Gave up the sport when he realised he wasn't going to be six and a half foot tall. 
He's not blessed in the height department to be a basketball player, is he? Right, we jump to the briefing room. There's some scepticism why this nearest is uh, interested in the SDC. As he says, we're major players now. Look how many Gould uh, system lords we've gotten rid of. And Cam, oh, oh, we're cool. He's right. From a certain perspective, you know, the Tari have made a big splash in a few years. Well, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You can kind of see why they annoyed the Tokra. Yeah. You know, the Tokra have been there for 2,000 years. You know, yeah, we might have knocked, we might have knocked a couple of little gold on the head, but we never went for the big boys. And then these humans turn up, and half of them don't even understand what the hell the Stargate does. <laughs> the only one with half a brain on her seems to be this one woman here. She seems perfectly content taking orders from someone who, let's be honest, comes across as a bit of a moron. Which, yes, most of the time with Jack is done for effect, for just that purpose. But at the same time, it's, you can see why the Tokra are just a little bit... We'd gone out and actually been a little bit more proactive. We could have been taking the credit for beating the Gould instead of, you know, Johnny come lately, Tari. It wouldn't have been so bad if, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of humans were dying in, in an open conflict, but they won. At the end of the day, this is still SG1 and maybe a few SG, other SG teams making a huge difference. I mean, the Tokra were just like the Gould. They were kind of so rigid and fixed in, in a way to do things. They lack flexibility. Barlow only lasted so long because he realised he had to change if he wanted to survive. He had to do things which no system lord would ever have done in the past. I think Barl lasts because Barl is willing to temporarily put himself out. Apophis and Heroa were obsessed with being the big I am. Yeah. Barl was perfectly content to play second fiddle to a currently... You know, I don't like Anubis, but at the moment, he's just got that little bit on me that I just probably need to watch him for a little bit rather than, you know, poncing about in my gold armour. <laughs> Making a statement, but drawing attention to yourself. Sometimes you don't want to make the statement. After Apophis, you think, well, how the hell can they ever replace him? And then we've got Ball, and you think, you're right. <laughs> totally different characters. The two actors played the roles differently, but two brilliant antagonists. Mm. And I think on the whole, you kind of would be more wary of Baal than Apophis. Apophis is very much just, oh, I have big army. I will throw big army at things that I want squashed and yeah. hope that nothing happens to big army because I have not got a plan B. Well, that was it. When we learned, when Baal actually claimed credit for the dialing computer, the, not the dialing computers, uh, the DHD manipulation, the programming code, that in itself was unusual for a system lord because... The Gold were not really renowned for creating technology. They stole, found, repurposed. The very fact that Nearus, as we learn, was a very intelligent person who actually could create things, that was something that Baal made full use of. Gave him options that other system laws didn't have. Yeah, Nerus is the sort of Goa'uld that Hoffis would have just thought, hmm, he's a little bit too smart for my liking. Potential problem down the line, I'm going to get rid of him now. Whereas Baal's like, mm, keep an eye on him, but since he's here, I as well make use of him. I'll kill him later, but for now... <laughs> yeah, get, get him working for me. It's not going to... All it needs is an, a, you know, a nice, uh, nice apartment, freshly delivered produce every day, pickled, hey, ripe, I can't remember the name of the eggs. Either way, keep him fed, 
and he, he's happy as a clam. <laughs> this is the beauty of it. You know, Nearest wants to come to Earth, provide his services to the SGC, to the diary. He's got a, a few lists of demands that he, he expects to be fulfilled, mostly in the vicinity of sustenance, but the general easily copes with. Thankfully, he is off-planet going through a security check. They finally learned their lesson. And he took how many seasons? <laughs> yes. <laughs> SG3 are doing a security check on one person off-world. SG3 led by Siler. That was yeah, unusual. I was, thinking, I was like, did they mean for Siler to be in that scene, or was that just... It couldn't. It, Dan Shea couldn't have been playing Siler in that role, because he, he's not in command. I'm not worried. It was Siler. He was fully decked out in a uniform, so where hey. <laughs> and to be honest, you, you kind of feel a little bit comfortable knowing that someone you know and recognise as being competent has been involved. Yeah, you trust him to do the job, don't you? He's not going to cut corners or anything. Exactly. You know, if it had been, if it had been you know, four random people we've just plucked out of the extra list, whacked in uniform, you'd be like, four red shirts, this isn't going to end well. Not even just a character you recognise, but a character that you bothered to give a name to. Yeah. And didn't wipe out immediately. It's like, okay, no, I've got I've, I've got some faith here. It might not be his usual stick, but go with it. He's clean, sir. Thank you, Sergeant. We'll take it from here. I am Nerus. Major General Hank Landry. I'm in command of Star Yes, Gate. I'm sure you're a very important person. You have very important reasons to subject me to your security precautions. But to meet you, to look upon the face of the one. The one what? The one who inspired the great uprising, of course. Oh, the time of false gods is at an end in no small part because of this man. Nearest comes into the SGC, played by Maury Shakin. Fortunately, he passed in 2010. Larger than life character in every sense of the word. Plays this role to perfection. You've got to like him. This is one of those roles that it would have been easy to go over the top. He dances on that line. Yeah. Not once does he overdo it. I mean, yes, there is oh so much ham and cheese involved and not just in what he's eating. <laughs> yeah. But it's the right levels. Perfect amount. He hits the bullseye. Anything else would be overkill. There's times you can see in the performance he's reining it in. He knows the character's got to be serious at this point. Tone it all down. When he sees Teal'c and Daniel, he's, he's bubbling over. Oh, fantastic. You know, with the man that inspired the rebellion, there's Daniel. And then he looks around. You're not. No. Easy. No. <laughs> and that is so meta. Mm. But I say, yeah, that, that's, that's, as mu- that's as much in character as it is to the audience, isn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah. How many times do you say, I wonder if Jack's going to be, I wonder if RDA's going to be in this episode? No, he's not. <laughs> and, of course, no Sam either. Oh, dear. Oh, terrible. Poor Nearest. He's so disappointed. And it's, and it's the way his face visibly falls. No, I'm not happy. You do honestly believe that he wanted to meet these people. Mm-hmm. No matter what his ultimate agenda is, he really did want to meet these people because he's probably known about him for a long time. He's probably been given intelligence files on him, especially Samantha, mm. some of the work she's done, so he could make use of it. If your expertise is technology, you know, the science of the Stargates and things like that, you want to meet somebody who's as good as, or if not better than you at understanding this technology. Mm. No, with, with, with no offence intended to her, but, you know, when you're expecting to meet Sam Carter and you get Vala. Yeah, who makes it quite a plain that, you know, nah. 
<laughs> no sunshine. Kind of see why he's a little bit disappointed. Yeah, unfortunately, quite a number of the audience felt the same way and stopped watching the show. Quick jump to the planet. Jaffa warriors are there. They really aren't learning from the lessons. After, after you've been firing your staff weapons at Prior, who's got an energy shield for 10 seconds, you think, oh, this ain't working. Let's go and do something else, lads. Fancy a point. Yeah, it's not, it's not the Jafar mindset, is it? No. I'm it's like, OK, that... it hasn't worked for the first 10 seconds, but maybe the first 10 seconds will have weakened it enough that the next 10, <laughs> seconds... 10 seconds... After about two minutes, we can't stop now. We, we could be on the verge. And then eventually it gets to the point, look, we've, we've committed now. If we, if we stop, we're going to look stupid. <laughs> yes. I mean, at, at this point, Jack would have taken a few steps back. Grenade. No, that didn't work. Uh, something a bit bigger. Thank you, anti-tank. Thank you. And then because he tried everything else, he's like, let's just try throwing a knife at it, see what that does. <laughs> yeah. And it'd be interesting, does that shield actually go around the prior, or is it just on the surface? It, something come up from below? If you fire an explosive projectile into the sand of two feet in front of the shield at a downward trajectory, would that work? Maybe it's like a donut and it's just sort of around. Maybe we could get like a mortar and we could fire it over. <laughs> yeah, someone in a parachute shooting down on top of his head. We'll never know, though, because, like I say, it's a quick glance at uh, the futility of attacking this prior before we return to the conference room. It's very much just a, you know, a gentle reminder that shit is happening. And it's getting worse. Yeah, yeah. All credit to the uh, set decorators. They they went to town with the, the Roman-inspired... I don't know what to call it, to be honest with you. It's, uh, if you like, busts of ancient Roman em- emperors. Lots of drapes, lots of gold decoration. I've got to admit it, it looks like an excellent spread on the table. That's a buffet you could be proud of. Absolutely. <laughs> they wouldn't know where to start. Normally, you go to a buffet, you think, I don't fancy that. Oh, that, yeah, they look okay. This, you go, I'm going to go for what looks edible. (laughs) Either what looks edible or what I can recognise. Yeah, what do you think is safe? Pork pies, they're safe. Sausage rolls, yep, they're safe. Don't know what that dip is. I'm not having any of that. Dip's questionable because you don't know how long it's been sat out for. It's like, "Mm, maybe maybe stick clear of that. When you see some of the bread that may be turning up at the corners, you think, well, those ham sandwiches aren't going to be any good. <laughs> Unless you slap a lot of mustard on them, and then mustard makes any quite edible. <laughs> Nearest, very impressed. He brings out something of his own invention, a little device he puts on the table, which generates a hologram of Kalana, coughs a couple of times, and then switches to his normal voice, which may be because they didn't want to keep flanging the voice or... The actor himself was putting on a little bit of uh, gruffness to emphasise it, but it actually works better when he's just talking normally. Mm. Still, <clears throat> still, we have important matters to discuss, don't we? Your voice just changed. Oh, we don't have to talk that way. <laughs> and especially as we know that we know from we've we've seen the Tokra, we know they don't have to talk like that. No. It's an image, one of the ways that control people. You sound threatening. You sound different. Yes, you've um, got a weird voice and you can make your eyes glow. Yeah. If I'm, you know, little lowly villager from planet God knows where, I'm going to buy that you're a deity. These people, on the other hand, there's no point. They know. I mean, hell, one of them was me. <laughs> yeah, not going to be very impressed. They're not even very impressed when he actually confesses that he uh, wrote the Darling programme that Bolt took credit for, and he, he's rather disappointed that Bolt took credit for it. 
Not surprised, but disappointed. I think as well, there's a certain element of they're looking at Neris thinking, did you really, though? Or are you just taking credit for it, knowing that it's not like we can really ring Ball up and still do a background check? There is that. It very well, he could be bluffing, but I suppose that that he's come here offering, he must know that at some point he's going to be tested. Mm-hmm. Of course, we we know in hindsight that he's playing them. He's going to kind of dangle the rope in front of them so they can tie their own little noose. The general kind of almost pulls the rug from under him when, you know, well, it's a Jafar planet. So what? We're not bothered. <laughs> oh, no, I can't have that. <laughs> Seriously worried about that, because uh, that kind of would derail the nefarious plans of... Yeah, that would have been the curveball for him, wouldn't it? It's like, yeah, we, yeah. Don't, we don't actually give a monkeys. Yeah, these people who can't help but butt in everywhere suddenly show some restraint. Yeah, you know what? You know, the whole sort of Anubis thing and then the replicators. We maybe need to not get involved in every little problem, so... Thanks for the offer, Neris, but nah, not interested. Yeah, Neris has got to kind of play a bit more on the situation of current state of the galaxy. As he said, this is basically the uh, the priors are make inroads into the Milky Way. This is where they've chosen to, well, the beachhead, as, as the episode is entitled. Uh, this is nothing short of an invasion of the Milky Way. So they kind of have got to respond, really have made a rod for their own back. I do love that point where just sort of hammer it home. He just point out that, you know, we are where we are largely because of you. Yeah. So you might want to take a little bit of responsibility. The existing military might of the Milky Way has been destroyed thanks to you. We could have put a dozen system lords with a thousand attack against this world, against the priors if they should come to this galaxy in force, but not anymore. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, they weren't trying this when the Goa'uld were here. <laughs> Goa'uld would still be here if not for you. Certainly at least four of you. Yeah. I think you've maybe got to sort of, you know, a little bit of involvement, please. Well, that was it. How many ancient devices did the system lords have in their possession, which can't figure this out, just put it into storage, but not the Tari. Come on, let's let's figure this out. Let's push this, prod this, bit of power here. This looks like the on button. We yes. want to know Ooh. what the thing does. Sure, fire away. Let's turn the damn thing on. Yes, yes. Damn communication stones. <laughs> More trouble than the worth. Hey. Right. The general is in his office. He's talking to somebody on the phone. He's talking to Jack. Okay, it's not Bridget Dean Anderson, but it's Jack. We'll take it. It makes sense story-wise, but it's a cheap move. It is. It is very much so. Oh, even if they'd just if they'd have been able to show the other side of the conversation. You know, RDA pops in, or they take a camera to his home and put up a black piece of cloth, and he's sitting in front of it with an American eagle and a flag or something. (laughs) Or even just, hell, literally have him phone his lines in. Yeah. But to just only be able to hear Landry's side of the conversation, why make it Jack Jack on the end of the phone and not just some random other person Landry's going to be shouting at? At this point, Jack has taken over command of... uh, Did Homeworld exist at this point? Or did that come into... It would be, wouldn't it? Because that's where Hammond, That's what Hammond went off to do after yeah, he got reassigned yeah. from the SEC. Yeah, so it would exist. And Jack is still in the military and he hasn't taken a leave of absence or anything. So it does make he sense. Just, all they needed to do was make sure that he wasn't stationed in the same place as Sam. Yeah, and within reasonably driving distance of each other's home. Convenient. 
<laughs> I'll admit though, he's, he's, he's on the phone talking about certain military hardware and someone who may have had a hand in creating it. Of course, then it drops and, yeah, she's standing right here, isn't she? <laughs> the camera pans around. And there's Sam. You're a funny man, Jack. <laughs> it was a nice scene, though. It was a very nice scene. And especially when Amanda's back from maternity leave. And also, she had a kind of a rough, from a sort of, you know, you're just back from maternity leave. She had kind of a rough year with this lot, didn't she? Because she's, she's got to float around in a spacesuit at the end of the season. Yep. And as well, it's this season of Atlantis running concurrent where she'll have been floating around in cold water for a scene with McKay. <laughs> Welcome back, Amanda. She went on record after giving birth, going on how many miscarriages she had prior to that while she was working on the show. Incredible strength that her and her husband had to go through that. And it would have been perfectly understandable when they finally had a child if she walked away and said, this is more important than anything. Like I say, she's still carrying a bit of weight. It's going to take a, a while, as as it does. From the purely, you know, aesthetic point of view, because I will hold my hands up to it, I'm human too. Man's tapping's looking good on it there. Well, I think that it's the hair that's just... <laughs> she looks bright-eyed. She looks fresh. She looks like she's come back from vacation. Mm. Literally, you know, the weight of the world has been lifted off her shoulders. Which is fairly impressive, because you're looking that restful You've not had a restful time. You know, <laughs> no. small newborn infant, not exactly the most relaxing of pastimes. No. Sam Carter, who worked on the Mark 9, a gate-busting nuclear weapon, I say. Boys and their expensive and powerful toys, but in this case, uh, one of the women were working on it as well. We know that in that regard, Sam is a little bit of a tomboy. Yeah. I mean, it's surprising that she's willingly worked on a giant Naquita-enhanced nuke. I suppose somebody at some point has made a very good justifiable reason why they need that in their arsenal. There is going to be a time when we need to be able to take out a gate with no question that the weapon we use will do the job. Promise you faithfully there won't be existing Naquita deposits on there, there won't be people, and <laughs> no one named General Bauer will be anywhere involved in this operation, we swear to you. Although it was a bit of a jerk, he was thrown in at the deep end. There's no way he could be brought up to speed on everything that was going on in that episode and behind the scenes there. He was used just as much as anybody. Unfortunately, there are military officers who you can get to do incredibly stupid things because they want to. Yeah, I was about to say, there, there has to be a certain element of, yeah, I'm happy to blow shit up randomly. It's all about what words come after the word no, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. At the gate room, Valor, again, incredibly sceptical. The orders are simple. That gate has got to be shut down by any means necessary. Cam is delighted. He's got the band back together. This is one of my favourite exchanges. Where it's like, got the band, Cam's like, yeah, what was the extra backing singer? <laughs> I know. There's Valor just leaning on the wall at the back. No, I'm not part of this bunch. I don't want to be in your Stargate club. Oh, sorry, 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 you know. <laughs> I'm good enough to be in the click before, but now the Sam's fine. You... <laughs> they don't really get on straight away which which is odd because as time goes by yeah no problem i think just like the studio executives who said no we can't have claudia black as a full-time on season season nine not her and ben brader then afterwards you know what she should be full-time on season 10 and the producer said, yeah we know thank you for actually coming out and saying that because we've already signed her i love the contrast between that and as you say sort of later sam and Vala. 
And I'm particularly thinking the one where Sam's been in the parallel universe for a bit. Yeah. And when she comes back and they've all sort of had their thank yous and she's what, and she's tried off. And then you just got the cutaway of Vala running back and giving her a big hug. Yeah. Partly because I do love the outtake where Claudia Black cracks her shin off or something. And they try and <laughs> hold together, but then it's like, ow, that really hurt. Vala's not impressed with the new arrival, is she? No. But it's made so much better as well, while being not impressed, is she's accessorised the sort of, the we mean serious business, you can tell this because we're wearing the blackout. <laughs> so I'm going to accessorise it with this beige scarf. Uh, no, it certainly stands out. But, you know, but I suppose at this point, they're still not 100% sure that the effect of the bracelets has totally worn off. And, well, Daniel ain't going to take any chances. I think as well, particularly with the sort of the beige scarf accessorising, it's very much... Yeah, we know it's Claudia Black, but honestly, she's not Aaron. So no. we will throw everything we can at you early on. Really hammer home. Yes, same actress, different character. And we know it's confusing because, you know, there's not a lot of difference between John Crichton and Cam Mitchell beyond environment. You kind of think you could interchange both characters. Wouldn't make much difference. Not a lot. Both characters still have that kind of anti-establishment streak in them. It's that very definite, I'm serious about my job, but not necessarily the way I go about doing it. Yeah. Which is odd for someone in this position, but there you go. Of course, this year we'll be seeing a movie called Maverick, where you have a very similar character who you think you'd be had been court-martialed decades ago. But, hey-ho. Oh, God, yeah, I'd forgotten that. I'd forgotten that was going to be a thing. Right, we're on board the Prometheus, under the command of Colonel Pendergast, played by Barclay Hope. We hear the uh, the sign Shaft. Everybody, please giggle, if you will. But as he points out, it's Camshaft. Giggle again, if you wish. Again, because nothing makes a joke funnier than explaining. <laughs> Valor and Daniel been through the gate, been through rings, and still, still they're at it. You can almost feel the love you really can. The chemistry between them is, is right there from the word go, right from the time when she beat the crap out of him, which she references. Just try and be a little... This is a military ship. I know that, darling. I did steal it. Uh, absolutely brilliant. I can understand why people didn't like the character or like either Cam or Valor or just didn't like the idea that Jack was not going to be a recurring character. By recurring, I mean probably once every half a season. Yeah, I've got to agree, 9 and 10, they are very different feel to them. But the show moved on, it, it changed. Unfortunately, not everybody went with us, but you hope that a lot of the people that maybe didn't watch it when it originally broadcast have watched seasons 9 and 10 and got something out of them. I think the thing is, they were screwed whatever choice they made. You yeah. bring someone in and write a character is different to O'Neill. That's bad because it's not O'Neill. But if you bought someone in that tried to be a carbon copy of O'Neill, then you'd get slated for that. It's like, come on, I know you miss Richard Dean Anderson because everybody missed Richard Dean Anderson. But, you know, let's be honest, Richard Dean Anderson's knee was not going to hold up to it forever. No. And to be honest, it's a miracle we had Richard Dean Anderson for as long as we did. Like he got a reduced role in season seven because... His body physically was not up to it. Season eight, he spends most of it sat behind a desk. They had to write in an O'Neill injury in season six because he fell over. When he took on the Stargate project, including producing, he probably thought it'd only run three or four seasons. He could never imagine that he might have been still working on it in ten years. Which, to be honest, is understandable because 
the go-to look then would have been, you know, look at Star Trek. They get seven seasons. Yeah. We're not going to get seven seasons, really. Star Trek, even then, was a global phenomenon. And they, they could only pull off seven seasons before it got too expensive to produce. You know, a lot of people think, you know, Star Trek did seasons of the, and then they did the feature film. We started with a feature film, so, you know, we kind of going in reverse here. So they're probably thinking five, maybe six seasons, Matt. And to be honest, with the way they end season six, you can tell that was meant to be the end. That was like, uh. the story's going to carry on, but we're going to spin it off, as opposed to maybe we'll do another season of SG-1 and we'll spin off the year after. Or we could just keep on doing Stargate. Yeah, go for it. Who'd want to be a producer? I wouldn't mind having producer money. Oh, yeah, that'd be nice. We're back with Nerus. And he's found chicken. Chicken. Mmm, it's a rare delicacy. More chicken. I see what I can do. <laughs> oh, God help us if he'd actually got boy, maybe some KFC or something. He'd, he'd died of shock. This, only royalty gets this. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, that, maybe that's where they missed the trick. Maybe if he'd bought in a family bucket, Neris would have been like, you know what, stuff the Ori. They don't yeah, have they're, this. They're offering me ascension, but <laughs> you're offering me, you know, the colonel. It's like, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's on the Ori. I'm on your side now, legit. Yes. Here's McNuggets. <laughs> nearest he's uh he enjoys his food i can't deny that they're keeping him happy he's although he's not being too uh generous with the information he definitely as we we learn he knows what's going on he's he's got satellites in orbit over the planet he's keeping an eye on what's going on yeah information wise he's very much spoon feeding while he's being fed with a shovel yes he mentions that the shield is expanding in size but it weakens, but every time it an expansion phase, again, a little bit of information, which looks like it's going to be beneficial, but in hindsight, he's setting them up beautifully. I was about to say, isn't it? He's, he's giving just enough information before the characters themselves can find it out. Yeah. You know he's thinking, right, come on, jump to the conclusion I want you to, jump to the beaming. You got it. Mm-hmm. Yes, how clever of you. Now, just slightly more in that direction. There we go. I think, right, so Carter's probably going to work this out for herself in about half an hour. So if I tell Landry in 10 minutes, that makes me look good. Yes, sorted. We're on. Oh, more chicken. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the thing, isn't it, with this kind of story? Whenever you get, even if it's not a character you're familiar with, but a character who is, you know, of the bad guys offering to help automatically you're writing yourself into a okay it's only going to be a matter of time before they turn on us it's how long can we string it out without making it look like we're stringing it out how long can we actually make it look like maybe this one isn't going to do what we think he's going to do you're not only trying to create a situation that fools the good guys you're trying to fool the audience as well and the audience especially if it's a sci-fi audience we're on the lookout for it, aren't we? We can Let's... be hard. As, we can be hard as fall. It's always nice when the writers and the producers can actually pull the wool over your eyes at times, mm. and you go, "I didn't see that coming." It's such a nice feeling when you're watching television. You got me there. Well Especially done. when you watch it back, and you realise actually they telegraphed this. They put it all there before it had no context. You missed it. We're back on board the Prometheus. Lieutenant Kevin Marks is on deck. Martin Christopher, he's worth a mention because his character is in all three live-action series. Actually ends up, I think, as a, a captain. 
congratulations to him. They scan the planet. Uh, at this point, there are no Jafar life signs. So, uh, oh dear, the prior got rid of those people who obviously annoying him. He was trying to read his book. You know what it's like. You sit there, you're trying to have a good read. You've just got to a good bit, and people just won't shut up. <laughs> please, please, let me finish this chapter, then I'll talk to you. Bing, bing, bing. No, go away. God's sake, Poirot's just got everyone together. <laughs> Come back when he's explained who's done it. Yeah, it won't be long. Although the three or four are red herrings before they get round to it. Let's face it, I should have watched Columbo, shouldn't I? Right, we're on the planet. I love this set. The blackness, the highlights of the gate, of the uh, prior staff, the shadows, the mist. It looks incredible. And very simplistic, again. Twice I've used that word in a couple of minutes. And it works perfectly as well because... The set itself is very dark. Yeah. We need the Stargate there because it gives us light. Without us having to put, we'll have actual lights about, we've got the Stargate. In this instance, it's literally just, yes, it's doing what it needs to do story-wise, but set-wise, it's basically a giant nightlight right now. Yeah. Anybody that's recently bought one of the uh, 3D-printed Stargates with built-in LEDs knows exactly what I'm talking about put one of them on in a nice dark room you go ooh. you get your little model prior put him in front of it and there you go you've got this diorama of beachhead right we're on board the ship they are getting into sg1 are getting into the spacesuits which were the latest design at the time so much so that there was no way you can get into one of these without help so uh, one of the minor plot irregularities in a certain episode of atlantis yeah, one of the uh, really bulky spacesuits that work perfectly fine, look a bit ridiculous, but they must have felt like. Walking on set in them, and there's the prior just standing there. Uh, yep. The actor thinking, I thought I was wasting my time three hours in makeup. At least I didn't have to wear them. Yeah, that's say, he must be looking at it thinking, all of a sudden, the hours in the makeup chair. Yeah. <laughs> I like the fact that, right, the uh, shield is going through an expansion phase. We're going to beam me down. We can beam you back up within 16 seconds, otherwise you've got to stay until the expansion phase, which is in about half an hour. So, what are you doing? Of course they're going to stay. Well, yeah. How often do we get a chance to have a chat with a prior? Yeah, or mess about with a, a nuclear weapon and not be in Hollywood movie, thinking of, well, let's say Armageddon, <laughs> no nukes, no nukes. I did like that line from Cam. I was hoping to have a nuclear career. <laughs> no. <laughs> you're a fighter pilot. You really don't think you're going to have much contact with nuclear weapons. But, well, there you go. You're standing right next to one. Set it. You put it into one of its standby modes. They beam down. Ham gives his eloquent speech. Hands it over to Daniel. Yeah, that wasn't well planned, was it? That was it. I just told you we got half an hour. <laughs> 29 minutes. Earth minutes. I always wanted to say that. Well, now you have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just standing around, twiddling their thumbs. Well, what can we do now? We're, we're in these great big spaces. It's not like we can just sit down and play cards for half an hour. Oh, God, yeah. You'd never be able to shuffle a deck of cards with those. <laughs> I mean, I suppose you, you could have a nice, pleasant conversation with the prior because he doesn't seem too put out by the fact that there's a, a very large, uh, high-yield uh, explosive device a few feet away. Which doesn't seem to be freaking any of them out would scare the living crap out of me. I mean, A, the fact that there's a giant nuke there, but the fact that this guy don't give a monkeys, and it's not that he doesn't understand what it's there to do. 
Yeah. He understands perfectly. In fact, he almost seems to be egging us on to blow it up. <laughs> Does anyone else think this is strange? No, just me? You would have thought that some of them, maybe even Tilk, had been watching the prior carefully, you know, just see how he how he reacts for an idea of what he's going to do next. You know, nothing, he just carries on reading his book. They do have a little conversation. I love that death is only the beginning of the real journey. And that would have me piss in my pants, because I'm thinking, oh, Christ, he's not going to back down, is he? Can we beam up now? If, no? you, would be, if you, kind of, you would sort of lean in, it's like, yeah, um, Jackson, <clears throat> I think he's for real. Yeah, this guy... He's not just in there for the money. The fact that he's a prior tells you what his mindset is. He's just not a, a casual follower, someone who's following him out of fear. This isn't someone who's, you know, just going along to get along. I think we've got ourselves a true believer here. Yeah. We might actually have to let this thing go boom. Which is fine, because as the Oriah promised, I will ascend. I will be with my gods. Hey-ho, you know, so uh, feel free to blow the damn thing up. I think that's one of the reasons that the Ori work, is that they are essentially everything that Goa'uld were claiming to be, but can never back up, whereas the Ori literally are otherworldly beings that can pull off some pretty scary shit. Yeah, they've actually got the technology that can emulate pretty much godlike powers. Mm -hmm. And the only people that have got anything close to it in the Milky Way are the Ascended Ancients, who, unfortunately, don't care about what goes on in the material, you know, in our plane of existence, which is a bit unfortunate, really. It's a drawback. <laughs> it's like the people that could stop this in an instant are lazy. Yeah, unfortunately, as we learn, the ancients ran away. <laughs> and you would have thought after everything they've just been through with Anubis, maybe they would re-examine that outlook just a little bit. The Q Continuum, you can't get them to stop messing about with our reality. But, like I say, the prior, he's not phased by uh, the nuclear weapon. The shield will be going through... Oh, wait, wait. All of a sudden, the sky lights up. Energy is flashing across the shield. A number of Jafar Hattat ships have entered orbit and immediately started firing on the shield. They make contact with SG-1. The shield is, is going to begin an expansion phase before it was predicted. Again, information that fits. Energy surge. Quicker expansion. Doesn't click yet does later that's the thing isn't it on the first watch it's just added tension it's like oh god in hindsight it's just like yep they've hooked you they're reeling you in in some cases you're actively swimming towards us while being reeled in you're making this oh so easy <laughs> yep so uh, they switch it to nuke mode one flashing lights that's not good as it says the trigger doesn't react very well to uh, energy discharges very worrying on a nuclear device, to be honest with you. Tend to be dropped by a military aircraft, which could be in war zones. It's a possibility you've got to consider happening, isn't it? I mean, really. Yeah. We say that now, though, but I imagine the pilots of the Enola Gay, when they were, oh, you're, you're going to be carrying the uh, the atomic bomb. And the, basically, the arming mechanism was probably just a little stopper that you pulled out, which allowed the uranium to implode to set off the, you know, the plutonium. You go, just a piece of rubber to stop it. Yep. Okay. <laughs> All of a sudden, feeling a lot less secure about the trip over. Yes. Damn. Please God, no turbulence, no turbulence. <laughs> Lads, none of you had beans for lunch, did you? <laughs> the Jafar, we see that there are three attacks, led by Garrick, played by Louis Gossett Jr. 
He's not happy at all. He's not happy with the incursion by the Ori, the loss of life, Jafar life on the planet. He's not happy that the Tarei are in his region of space. He's not happy that they haven't told him they're going to be there. He's not happy that they've got intelligence that they're not passing on. He basically isn't very happy. He's not having a good day. Nope. And even worse, he's actually put a cloak scout ship into the field before he got there, so he knows what they've been up to. Yeah, he's been sat there watching as she one proceeded to beam down with a bomb and sit there and talk. Yeah, Tilt, you know, words are our most powerful weapon. No, they're not. No, they're really not, Tilt. <laughs> words can certainly help... Mark 9 nuclear bomb. Yeah. You know, the fact that, that it's got a grading system that goes up to 9, it's serious, Tilt. Yeah, it... In circumstances, the point that Tilk is, is making is valid. Before the rebellion, people had to talk. The idea of rebellion had to plant itself into the minds of the Jafar. But they came to a point where you needed weapons and you had to fight and you had to be willing to die to earn your freedom. Fortunately, only 10 seconds to go before the nuke goes off. Uh, so sit back and watch the show. And the prior, he starts walking away towards the gate, puts his hand onto the gate. He knows what's going to happen. He is not concerned at all. The the weapon goes off. Yep, big bang. And the last wave is seen shooting out within the shield, hitting the boundary of the shield, and the shield getting bigger. Getting bigger quite fast as well. I'm starting to think we've been had here, people. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't supposed to happen, was it? No. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> you almost kind of want to see Daniel go, um, Sam... Was that supposed to happen? It was an incredible plan. The very idea that, A, they learned that this yield can actually absorb the energy being directed to it. That in itself, I can, for you know, for storytelling purposes, imagine an energy shield that can deflect energy, absorb energy and redirect it. Modern battlefield armour is designed not to let a shell hit it, but react to it. So if a shell hits a tank, a piece of the tank's armour explodes outwards to nullify and negate some of that force. I find it incredibly difficult to accept an energy shield the likes of which they've built here. can accept it for the story, but I can't get my mind around it. Mm. It's one of those things, isn't it? Especially when you're watching science fiction. It throws a lot of concepts at you that you just kind of have to run with. Yeah. It's nice if, if you can join the dots in your mind saying, yeah, I know how this works in the real world. So I know how that can work in this show set 100 years into the future. I think it's actually Discovery that sums it up best when they're explaining the spore drive to Pike. And he just sits there and goes, you're telling me that we're going to ride a highway made of mushrooms? <laughs> I just kind of have to take you on faith on that. Yeah, I'll take Transwarp Drive over that any day. <laughs> but I think that's, I'm quite happy. I think that's the thing. It's like we as the audience kind of have to take a lot on faith. I think this is where you have to give maximum respect to Amanda Tapping. Because this is the point in the episode where everyone is going to turn and look at her. And she knows that she's got a not small chunk of dialogue to read. <laughs> yes. But she has to make it sound like she understands what she's waffling. I, she's got to, I mean, yes, I mean, the advantage of she's sat in front of a console, she probably has got maybe not the entire script, but certainly some bullet points positioned just positioned enough that you that she can read it, but it's not going to get picked up on any camera angle. But at the same time, it's got a, even though, she, you know, the character could be reading the information off the screen, she's still got to sound like she understands what she's rabbiting back. The great thing is for David Hewlett, 
Rodney can say the same thing at twice the speed and he doesn't have to worry too much about it sounding reasonable. He can rush through it, bundle through it, mince his words up, whereas Sam's delivery is more precise, more... Uh, not accurate, uh, more precise, more concise, almost as if she is explaining it to her peers, half of which who will be able to understand her. In many ways, that delivery has got to be better than David's. It's almost the opposite, isn't it? It's like Sam will explain something, understanding she's explaining something. Yeah. Whereas Rodney just kind of throws the information at you, can't always register that you're operating on a different level to us. Yeah. You need to slow down a bit, dial it back a couple of notches. You know, don't talk to us like we're idiots, but you need to spell some of this out to us. And yes, <laughs> I realise it's not an ideal situation for you to have to explain, but, you know, it's a situation we're in. I think it's when that episode of Atlantis, when they're drifting in space, and Shepard's like, look, you don't have to necessarily explain it all to me, but give me a vague idea of what you're doing, just so I can nod and say, okay, great. I think that's why Zelenka became so important at times. He could interpret or give his own explanations, which pretty much everybody could understand. He was sort of the two-way translator, wasn't he? He could translate McKay into English, yeah. <laughs> and he could translate normal person to McKay. Yeah, it's a talent, that is. Right, Garrick is certainly not impressed at all. They're firing on the shield again. This is when Sam, as you say, gets gets a light bulb moment. It's too late by then. The shield actually totally encompasses the planet. At this point, pretty much all hell is breaking loose. Inside the shield is uh, plasma, superheated plasma, and they start detecting objects coming through the gate. About 10 metre long rectangular objects shooting up into orbit. They realise, uh, the Prometheus realises, hey, we, we probably should have uh, evasive manoeuvres. Uh, one of the attack are uh, too busy trying to shoot things instead of not moving. Lesson to be learned there, folks. Attacking something is not always the best way to survive. Getting out of the way always helps. Sometimes it's worth stop shooting. Move your ship just a little bit. You can always carry on shooting afterwards. Yeah. They're on, you know, a preset ballistic trajectory. They're not actually targeted at you. So you've got plenty of warning. But the Prometheus just get clipped, the shield gets compromised, so they pull out of orbit, put some distance away. We jump back to the SGC, Nearus. He is mug at this point. Yeah, I about to say, he's, he's now hit the button for traditional Goa'ul. Yeah, he thinks, my plan has worked, I'm in the seat of power, I've got this conversation, I know how it's going to work out. More importantly, I'm safely away from the front line. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, it doesn't quite go according to uh, how he how he expects. I suppose this is a Landry... Well, he wouldn't be a general if, if he wasn't at least tactically aware of how to handle somebody. Mm. Neres confesses that all good meals have to come to an end. He goes about the Ori being the only true gods in this and every other galaxy. And, of course, he flicks into the voice. Couldn't have done it without you. They say all good meals come to an end. I assume, General, that by now SG-1 has reported that the Ori, the closest thing to true gods in the entire universe, have successfully established a permanent foothold. What did you do? Oh, it's not what I did. General, what I have done pales in comparison to your contribution. And he's right. That's the first moment where you actually buy that Neros is a Goa'uld. Yeah. Because up till this point, he's almost been been meek and subservient. But this is the first moment where he's gone proper Goa'uld and has literally grown a pair 
to the extent that not only am I going to point out that the situation has gone to complete and total shit, but you, General, you're the one that made it happen. It's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, Nerus, no, 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 no. This for you was not a smart move. <laughs> no. A great idea that the initial staff weapon fire helped to maintain the shield and get it to grow by a few centimetres every hour. The Jafar helped that. They got it going. The nuke gave it, I think they said, 70% of the energy required. And then the final weapons fire, lasers, blasters, railguns, missiles, gave it the other 30%, which enabled it to envelop the planet, the gate to survive, which makes you wonder how effective the Mark 9 is. That I suppose the Ori could have put a shield immediately around the gate and left it open, just enough to absorb power of the uh, nuclear explosion. I suppose that's possible. Not just that sort of the Ori was could sort of work out the mechanics and the physics of the plan, but it's something that no one ever really addresses. It's like it's not so much that the Ori did this; it's that they knew how to manipulate us to get us to do exactly what they wanted us to do. Anybody else thinking we might have bitten off a little bit more than we can chew here? <laughs> Be honest. I mean, anybody listening to this podcast, I'm pretty sure they've seen Stargate SG-1, they've seen Atlantis, they may, may or may not have seen Universe, but probably seen the Ark of Truth and Continuum as well. But they pulled a rabbit out of the hat to defeat the Ori. <laughs> they really did. Oh, definitely. Yeah, they wrote the Ori so powerful that we look at Voyager and the Borg. The Borg were incredible when they were introduced. In the end... They were just another bad guy. With SG-1 and the Ori, the Ori were uber bad guys right until the end of the Ark of Truth. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? You, it's all very well writing a massively powerful super race, but how the hell do we actually make it so the good guys can beat them? The only way is either to make it impossible for them to reach the Milky Way or totally destroy them. And, well... <laughs> I can't imagine anybody pulling that off by a standard... It, I don't want to criticise the arc of truth because it's not a bad little movie, but they were stretching at straws for so much of it. It's Superman syndrome, isn't it? It's you've got a character that is that powerful. You spend then the bulk of your time trying to work out new and inventive ways of weakening him. Yeah. Back on the Prometheus, the planet is now collapsing within the shield. The strange rectangular blocks are aligning themselves, forming very familiar-looking pattern. This was the part of the episode that, first time round, blew the mind, because it's like, they're not actually going to... are they? <laughs> but it makes sense in continuity. I mean, we've already seen that the 38-minute limit on opening the gate can be bypassed if you have enough power. And we've seen that the Ori have enough power, so why not just gale it up a bit? It almost harkens back to that really early Jack O'Neill line when they when they visit the new Tolan homeworld, uh, and they're looking yeah. at, and they're looking at the Tolan made Stargate. And Jack's like, "Ours is bigger." Yeah, it's almost like someone's like, "I'm going to take that line, put it in my back pocket, give me some time." And I even love that you actually. And I think I, this is where I like season nine and ten because the show's getting a little bit more self-aware, and you will actually have the characters saying what the audience is thinking when you've got them going. Does that look like to anyone else and it's like yeah kind of and they're like well no because i was gonna say stargate <laughs> yeah lo and behold we're making a stargate only the king of stargate and even then valor is still on the ball 
It ain't ready yet. It's still building. We've got time to do something about it. Nobody's listening to it. They're all they're all going through the normal banter. You know, blah blah blah, techno babble, techno babble, shock or but what if there's only valor, you know, in, like in the background waving their hands, cooey. I know what we can do. Again, it's the pro- it's the age-old problem with the click. It's that, you know, the click becomes blind to anyone outside the click sometimes. And when you're used to SG-1 saving the day, you tend to focus on SG-1 and just think, all right, my job here is to do whatever SG-1 needs me to do. Yeah, I just need to wait for someone in SG-1 to tell me what to do. Yeah, but Valor is not really a shrinking violet, is she? Oh, good God, no. No, no. Whilst I'm an SG-1 figuring out that the the Ori are going to create a, a micro-singularity out of the condensed remains of that planet, which is going to power the uh, Stargate from this side of the, the wormhole, Valor, she's off to the ring transporter. She's got a plan. And I won't say it's reckless, because it makes sense. As we know, the ring transporters automatically lock onto the nearest source that's within range. And she knows there's a cloaked scout ship out there, and a cloaked scout ship has a ring transporter. Mm-hmm. So she miraculously appears on this cargo ship, one of uh, the Free Jafar. Fortunately, it's only one pilot on board. It's been useful to have a second pilot. Or, uh, you know, somebody, a uh, flight technician, or... Just an extra pair of hands would have been... Yeah. I think but... this is the point when the powers that be will have been like, we can bring Vala in as a full-time character. Because not only has Vala worked out how to save the day, she's the one who is actively trying to save the day, knowing that the margin for error is so small as to almost be non-existent and there's nothing in it for her other than if we don't do this then the universe will get conquered as part of the universe kind of don't want that to happen what are you doing trying to help daniel someone had to do something and you wouldn't listen yeah there's no direct threat to valor the fall of, of the galaxy to the Ori probably take a generation anyway. She could probably have a very comfortable life for the next 20 years before ever really coming under the thumb of the Ori. And she doesn't stand to gain anything immediately. It's not like there's powers that be haven't got a great big reward sign up saying, <laughs> fix this problem and this pile of fabulous wealth can and will be yours. Yeah, she normally has been motivated by uh, the pursuit of wealth. Mm-hmm. But anyway... She's figured it out that the the blocks are forming the Stargate and there's a few left over. And she's in a ship roughly the size of one of these blocks. So she flies it and jams itself into the last remaining gap. Scrapes the paint well and good. Energy starts to flow through the gate, definitely causing a problem. So what will happen when the actual gate is activated? Well, we don't have long to wait when the planet finally shrinks. We get that little pause as... Who knows what physics is going on in this little portion of space-time. Singularity explodes, a huge amount of energy is released, and what should have been directed safely into the Stargate to generate a wormhole flows through a disrupted circuit, and it vaporises. Almost as if there wasn't supposed to have a cargo ship wedged in between it. That's serious design. That's Death Star Design Floor 101. Always be prepared for slight irregularities. Yep. Never design the interiors of your ship and or station to be sort of small ship size. They always <laughs> need to be smaller than that. You know, which we do not want a situation where people can fly ships through us. Because, you know, I mean, for starters, it's just bad management. It's rude. And also they might be able to conveniently fly their way through almost as if these things are set out like a road directly to where they need to go to blow us up. 
Now, I say the uh, the insurance adjusters will not be generous when it comes to a payout. On the this. Death Star Mark III, what we'll do is we'll have all of these little sort of road-like tunnel interiors just leading into dead end. <laughs> yeah. And there won't be enough room for them to turn around. Back with Nerus, he is still smug as hell. There is still time to repent. And he gets a bit of a shock when he's told that the uh, Super Stargate has been destroyed. He recovers quickly, I'll give him that. I love the look on his face initially, because he meant, again, everything else with this performance, it's pitched perfectly, and his facial expression tells you so much. On the one hand, 50% of him is certain that Landry is bluffing him, because he knows what the Ori are capable of. Other half of him that knows what SG-1 is capable of. Yes. And he sat there, he's like, you can see he's torn. He's like, I don't want to believe that I've basically put my lot in with the wrong team. That is three quarters of the SG-1 that I know to be afraid of. Yeah. I'd say he does recover, though. Like he says, you've only delayed the inevitable. These are gods. And, of course, when I die, I will ascend. I have been promised by the Ori. And this is when Landry kind of twists a knife a little. Execute? No, we're not going to execute you. We're going to be in prison in a nice deep hole. I love that line. You know, he talks about ascension. No, no, no. You will descend. <laughs> yes. Yes, and uh, you'll work for us. Why? I just love that. You will do exactly <laughs> what you came here to do. What on earth could possibly compel me to do that? Hunger. And again, <laughs> that fantastic face drop. I know. He made it quite clear what his weakness was. Oh, yeah. He could, he could not have advertised that anymore. Nope. If he could have restrained his appetite and just says, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I'll have, I'll have a bun, I'll have a cup of coffee, fine, thanks. I'm going to sit here, I'm going to enjoy it, but I'm not going to let them know that I'm enjoying it. You can almost hear his inner monologue go, damn. Yeah, foiled again by those pesky kids. Got on our way there too. The beauty of it, we will see near us again. Right, back on the Prometheus, we're getting a classic walk and talk through the corridors of the ship. We're in the infirmary, of course, Daniel did suffer mild relapse when uh, Valor disappeared from this realm, but thankfully it's, he's recovering quickly. Most of the side effects of the bracelets have worn off. We get the little tantalising hint that, oh, we detected a matter stream. Okay, I'll let you have that. I don't think the gate really would have worked. I don't think it would have created a wormhole, but okay, maybe. We'll let it go. So uh, there is a chance that Valor did get pulled through uh, the wormhole. And Daniel... I really wanted to smack him. We wanted to send them a message. That's almost like, well, she may be dead, but if she isn't... <laughs> it does seem a little... You know, you know, the woman has essentially just sacrificed her life. I mean, yes, she's got... It's possible she's got incredibly, and we'll say air quote lucky, because we've seen the Ori home galaxy, and we've seen how well Vala fits in it. It's not like she's going to be having a lot of fun. No. I think at times Daniel can be... A little callous. I just felt that the idea of ending this episode on a bit of a humour, a bit of a, a slight, an idea of a slight high note, didn't fit with the fact that they've lost somebody. No. May not that, have been a member of the SGC. That should have been what they ran with. It's that, okay, we survived. Yes, we've stopped the Ori, but I don't think anyone's actually going to call this one a win. Yeah. Because as Nera says, you know. You've just delayed it. The Ori can do this at another planet, and you may not know about it. They've tipped their hand, but it's a big galaxy. Well, and not just that. It's like, yeah, they've tipped their hand, 
and in so doing have actually kind of made things worse for you because now you know what the ori can do it's like yes we've seen we've seen that they can you know create illnesses and they can immolate priors this is raising the bar we thought we had things bad with the gould this kind of makes the goa all look like charlatans <laughs> it does a bit yeah this is a whole new level of bad guy this would have been the episode to end on the somber note because then it would have made vala's return a little bit more holy crap she actually survived yes that might have worked a lot better because once you've got that thought in there that okay she could actually still be there again being a science fiction watching audience you kind of sit and wait for her to come back and knowing what sci-fi does you can be more or less certain it's going to be around about the season finale (laughs) but even that side i think this is the episode that showed that sg1 can work without richard dean anderson you've got the rest of the band there to run with the analogy that the show uses quite a lot. You can either write an episode that's very strong on characterization or very strong on plot, or you can mix and, mix and match as required. The best series can do both. It can have an episode which is virtually all character-driven, and while that may not be beneficial to the casual viewer who's not familiar with the characters, it can be incredibly fulfilling to somebody who's invested in the series. Yeah, You get something that's plot-based, that can draw in a casual audience, it can have action, it can have a bit of tension, suspense. Again, it can also be very pleasing to a long-term fan. If you get the balance right, you get the best of both worlds. It's very difficult to do. But I think this proves that you've got characters that may not be at the level of Jack O'Neill, but as a group, they work. Mm. There's a lot of love, there's a lot of friendship, there's a lot of, not conflict, but animosity... Without the innuendo, Valor and Daniel are rubbing up against each other every chance they get. She is wonderfully over the top, as Valor has always been, except for that time when she got burnt to death. Wasn't very pleased about that. Who would be? Well, yeah, I say, you know, any days where that happens, you're not gonna, you're not gonna put that down as being a good day. No, you won't. But overall, an excellent episode. Not much wrong with it at all. And I like the fact that the show itself is aware enough to say, yes, we know this isn't the team dynamic that you're used to but just go with it yeah give us a chance let us show us what we can do because i'll be honest i prefer seasons nine and ten to eight in many ways someone with the strength of rda on screen you either commit fully or you don't Mm. nothing worse than thinking this story really should have jack o'neill in it and you're trying to make do by bringing in a guest character or tweaking an existing story to work with that jack you do have RDA on set, but he's doing a walk and talk or he's sitting in his office and you think, well, yeah, it's great, but we all want more. And as well, you wind up with a situation that you have to then come up with situations to make it more what you recognise. You either have to come up with reasons why either we have A, O'Neill going off-world, or B, have the trouble occurring in the SGC. Yeah. It's like, how often do we actually see Hammond get his hands dirty? Not very. He went off world two, maybe three times in seven years. Yeah, I think first time he had a legal advisor telling him to stop taking responsibility for everything, General. Mm-hmm. Other time, yeah. I love that moment. <laughs> it's not even so much the yeehaw, it's Tilk's reaction. It's like, help. Yeah, it's almost as suddenly realised this guy's a warrior at heart. It's like that thing, you kind of always got the feeling that Tilk always respected Hammond. But before you kind of think he respected Hammond because 
he could see that O'Neill respected Hammond. Yeah. Because early Tilk does take most of his cues from O'Neill. And he's like, okay, O'Neill clearly respects this guy. I personally don't see it, but that's enough for me. I think that moment for Tilk was the first moment was like, no, I get it. I get it now. He's not just the man that sits at the desk and tells we can't have fun. Yeah, that does sum up the general at times. Can we go to this world and play, please? No, you can't. <laughs> You've got to have your medical. Oh, Please, I mean, it's an alien world. There could be anything there. Yes, that's why I'm not letting you go. There could be anything there. <laughs> You're letting SG3 go. Yeah, good episode. Excellent choice. Again, I also think with Landry works, because you've got the more general Hammond-esque role of he's not getting involved, but at the same time, he's a presence. At no point are you sat there thinking he's not the man in charge. In many ways, he seems to be a more uh, more bureaucratic general than uh, Hammond was. I know the history of uh, George Hammond in the Air Force. I don't know Landry's offhand, mm. how he got to where he was. I mean, there's plenty of ways to get promoted through action in the field, through just being in the right place at the right time, knowing the right people. Being friendly with a senator or two never really hurts when it comes to getting promotion in the military. But he definitely is well-suited to commanding the SGC. Hmm. I think as well it worked because it's almost the problem of when O'Neill's in charge or when Carter's in charge in Atlantis. You need the person behind the desk to be behind the desk. I've got this team of crack people who are all the best at what they do. It's my job to let them do it, as opposed to it's my job to be in there doing it as well. It's that problem of taking a character from an active role and moving them to what is a desk job. Yeah. It's like it's not O'Neill's job to be running around with a P90. It's not Carter's job to be coming up with science that's going to save the day. Which is why it always surprised me when they put Carter in charge for that season. It's like, you've done this with RDA. Didn't work. Well, we know, really, that they didn't have much choice. He was under contract, and where else were they going to put her? They weren't going to pay her off without uh, actually forming on screen. And I think, because, I mean, I mean... If you want to generate a certain level of what the hell tweet, put on Twitter that you prefer Richard Wolsey in charge to Sam Carter, <laughs> that gets a reaction. Wolsey makes a lot more sense than Sam Carter. Especially because Wolsey, by that point, had some of his preconceptions have been, you know, adjusted. Oh, well, let's face it. Spending a couple of days on Atlantis with Jack O'Neill while fearing for your life will change a man. And being on a planet being hunted by alien bugs. See, that's one of the reasons I would have liked to have had more Atlantis, just to have more of him. Yeah. By the end of Atlantis, you really got the feeling that Robert Picardo was... He hadn't put the Doctor behind him, because he's always going to be the Doctor. But he was carving out a nice little niche for himself as Wolsey. And you kind of think, only going to get better with more episodes that not going to give us. <laughs> well, apart from one cameo in the universe. Well, that's something that we're... That's never going to be resolved... I think everybody believes that Atlantis had at least one more season in it, and with all the goodwill in the world, we're never going to see it again. No. Okay then, folks, that was the excellent Beachhead. Excellent dialogue, fantastic little special effects, great guest stars. One of the highlights of the season, which, uh, no matter what anybody says, is not a bad season. Tim, you announced that uh, Uncharted Territories has wrapped its podcasting days up. Yes. Any hints on what you'll be doing next? We're kind of going to be... You know how the last few UTs, we kind of spent more in the sort of what's going on generally? Yeah. 
kind of going to be focusing more on that. Well, never a better time for the media, sci-fi and other genres. Plenty to be uh, getting your teeth into. And also because Pinder sort of fell into the trap that we kept falling back onto the staples, you know, these are the five things we talk about. Whenever we tried branching out, we seldom ever found anything that worked. (laughs) Or we were having to branch out into something that wasn't science fiction. Kind of becoming easier to go in that direction. Maybe it's time to commit, draw a line under UT, and then we can do something else. Where then maybe it doesn't matter if you have a week, two weeks, where you don't actually record an episode. Yeah, there's there's nothing worse than feeling that you've got to record something. Mm. And that's thing, beyond anything else, doing a podcast, first and foremost, it's got to be fun for the people doing it. Yeah. Because if it feels like a chore to you and me talking about Stargate, that's going to come across to the people listening. Whereas if you're enjoying what you're doing, that same logic holds. We're enjoying what we're doing. Hopefully that comes over in the discussion. It's like when you watch a film. And I'm going to use this as the example because it's the first one that comes to mind. Say you're watching a Bond film. And first couple, you can see that guy playing Bond is enjoying it. That comes across in his performance. The later ones come around and you can kind of see in the performance that he's only doing it because the studio waved a spectacular <laughs> wadge of money at him. And it's not helped by the fact that he did actually go on record. FYI, in case you hadn't noticed, this is Daniel Craig I'm talking about, <laughs> and said the only way I'll do another one after Spectre is if they offer me a stupid amount of money. And they did. And they did offer him a stupid amount of money that, surprisingly, he has not disclosed the sum of. Well, it's probably not Robert Downey money, but maybe close. Okay then, folks, that was Beachhead. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to Tim for picking that episode and joining me on the recording tonight. Hopefully we'll be hearing from him and Stacey in uh, whatever podcast adventure they grace us with in the future. I'll include that on Twitter, which is our favoured uh, social media platform. Speaking of which, you can find us on Facebook. Just do a search for Gatecast or a general search for Stargate. We are also on Tumblr and uh, on Twitter we are at the Gatecast. You can find us at stargatearchives.com and contact us via email, stargatearchives at gmail.com. We are on Google Play, Stitcher, and of course Apple Podcasts. Ratings and reviews are always welcome. Don't think I've had a rating and review for three or four years. Hey ho. <laughs> Never mind. But for now, I've been Mike. Take care. Tim, thank you very much. You're welcome as always. Bye bye. <laughs>